a voice. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy, sheet, mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make these poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its side. Sides, three branches of, out of 
sorry, there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on the other branch, so for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups, made like almond blossoms, with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So if you uh, arrived late, you didn't hear that Jacob is sick today. I got the uh, text at 9.30 last night that... He was under the weather, so you get me this morning. So um, just a couple praises. Praise, praise God that we have a pastor that prepares so well. Jacob, if you don't know, writes out his entire sermon word for word every week ahead of time. And so to have somebody stand in like this is, you know, not that big of a deal because he prepares so well. So praise the Lord. And then most of all, just praise the, the Lord for his word. We know that it is powerful. We desire here at Loudoun Valley to be faithful to that word. And it's not the eloquence of speech that matters, but it's that we faithfully preach the gospel. So that's what we're trying to do this morning. So let's get started. So a quick search on Google this past week revealed questions regarding regularly asked, uh, regarding things that begin with the words, how can. Perhaps you've asked some of these things as well. How can I become famous? How can I keep from singing? I don't understand that, keep from singing. How can you mend a broken heart? How can I watch A Star is Born? Well, you can go pay for it. Um, how can I buy lift stock? How can Congress override a veto? So all good questions. Well, regardless of whether these questions are yours this morning, we all ask questions that begin with how, don't we? How can we get a job? How can we live a life fulfilled? How can we pay the next bill? And I think one of the ways that we can sort of summarize the main point of the Bible also is with a how question. And that's this. How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? How can God, who is so above, so amazing, so great, so glorious, be a God who is also with us? How can God be both transcendent everywhere, and yet close, both above and near, as those made in God's image and separated from him by sin? This must be the all-important question for our lives. How can we approach God? How can we get a relationship with God again? How? Well, so far, our study in the book of Exodus over the past year has helped to confirm this problem behind the how question. 
So when Moses saw the burning bush in chapter 3, he was told not to come near. When the Israelites saw God's glory descend on Mount Sinai, they begged not to hear him anymore, lest they die. When Moses drew near to God on Sinai in chapter 24, God's presence was like a devouring fire. So how can we hope to approach God, that devouring fire? Even more, how can he possibly come dwell with us? Last time we were in Exodus, we saw that God, after giving his commands, his terms, entered into covenant with his people, Israel. He committed to being their God and making them his people. And now, as we leave the covenant confirmation process behind, God, or Yahweh, that personal name for God, begins to share with Moses how he will live in a covenantal relationship with Israel. So four different sections that we'll see here this morning in Exodus 25. First, the contributions. Second, the throne. Third, the mercy seat. And fourth, the Savior. So again, four parts. First, the contributions. Second, the throne. Third, the mercy seat. And fourth, the Savior. So first, the contributions. There in verse 1, Yahweh says, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. He goes on to give a sort of shopping list of supplies that will be needed. Gold, silver, bronze, yarns, linen, animal skins, wood, oil, spices, everything that we put on our list for Harris Teeter. As we venture into the next several weeks, we'll see what these materials will be used for. But for now, notice how Yahweh receives the contributions from his people. He asks for contributions from those whose hearts move them. He wants them to want to give. So later in chapter 35, we'll see Moses addressing Israel. And he says, take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart. Let him bring the Lord's contribution. In verse 21, we see that those whose hearts were stirred were the ones who gave. See, God requires obedience, but he doesn't value obedience that lacks heart-level worship. It has to come from the heart. It seems that many earthly dictators are totally fine with their riches and thin praise and homage from their people, even if their people secretly hate them or maybe even desire them death. For these dictators, getting the things, the wealth, even the false praise is enough. But for God, that isn't. The stuff is not what ultimately lasts. No, he is after the hearts of the people. They had served Pharaoh. Now they are going to serve him. And so their service must be from the heart. So church, there's an application here for us. Like Israel, we give of our possessions and contribution to the work of God, the work of his church, the work of bringing the gospel to our lives, our community, and the world. But as we give, as you give, I wonder, do you give out of worship? Or is your giving mostly from compulsion or from guilt, begrudging obedience? Has giving lost its joy and become a burden, a bitter demand to you? God is not pleased with that. He loves you, and you have experienced his love. 
So you're giving while sacrificial and at times painful must be out of thanksgiving for the generous gift he has given us in his son. So are you generous with his church? Is your heart joyful in giving to the work of God as you see and his bountiful mercy to you? Do you consider your regular giving to Loudon Valley as being for his praise above all else? Like Israel, our giving is an act of worship. We must not consider it to be the sort of financial, less spiritual aspect of our life here as a church. No, we must remember it is worship and it must come from our hearts and be a joyful expression of giving ourselves to God who has given himself to us. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but for God loves a cheerful giver. So, and I know for me in particular, um, it's just on auto withdrawal sometimes. You don't even think about it. So it's not that I see it as a burden necessarily, but it's just something I don't even take into account anymore because in my life I can just automate it. And I think that's something we have to guard against as well. And I think this cheerfulness in giving can also be dimmed by a subtle belief that our giving will earn us favor with God. But Christian, that is false. And be freed from that. So a theologian, uh, J.B. Fesco, says it like this. The offerings given by Israel were not repayment for their deliverance from Egypt, nor were they an effort to purchase their redemption. Their giving towards the construction of the temple was supposed to be an act of heartfelt gratitude and worship. So church, your giving does not earn favor from God. It does not earn favor or love from our brothers and sisters. No, it's a response to the favor that God has already given us in the sacrifice of Jesus. Well, one more note on these first several verses, uh, which is interesting, is where do you think Israel got all of this gold and silver and the rest of those possessions? Well, it may have come from numerous places, but we knew, do know at least one place they must have received some of these supplies from Egypt, right? We saw that a few weeks ago. Do you remember how on their way out of Egypt, God told them to ask the Egyptians for their possessions and valuables? They plundered Egypt in victory. And now those same materials are being used to worship Yahweh, the one true God. So isn't that sovereignty of God amazing? Isn't that plan delightfully ironic that Pharaoh and his people who had disrespected the people of uh, the true God and the people of Israel are now seen to be among the indirect assistants in building the tent that will exist for the dwelling place of Yahweh? God will not be thwarted in his plan to bring glory to himself. So the next point to consider is the throne so with the supplies in hand, what will Israel do? Well, God continues with his instructions. In verses 10 through 22, he gives the plans for what will be called the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of Testimony. This Ark will be a rectangular box or chest, and you can see an artist's guess as to what that might have looked like in your handout, in your bulletin. 
The ark would have been made with wood, overlaid with gold, and have rings so those who carried it with poles would not be required to touch it. The measurements here are given in cubits. A cubit is roughly 18 inches, and I think that's a little bit fascinating. A cubit was the measure, literally, of, of from your middle finger to your elbow. So I don't know if there's one particular guy in the village whose arm they used for a cubit, but in the ancient world, that's what a cubit was. Um, and so that here for the ark is about three and a half feet long, two feet wide, two feet tall, about the size of a small desk. So there in verse 17, Yahweh shows the plans for the lid on this box. It's a lid of pure gold that fits on top of the ark, and it's called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, one piece with it are to be carved two cherubim, two angels with their wings spread out above them and their faces towards one another. And church, here in this small chest where we see the most important element of all what we call the furniture of the tabernacle, this Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top is to be the very throne of God among his people, the footstool of his heavenly throne. See, all these supplies are for one purpose. And do we see that in verse 8? And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And this Ark of the Covenant is going to be the answer to the question we began with this morning. How can God dwell with man? And that's by placing his throne among them. As we'll see, this tabernacle, as it becomes furnished, will be like a house for God. God is setting up a tent among his people, and in the holiest place in that tent is the throne. No one can come close, and yet Yahweh has come close to his people. And so this is serious business. If Yahweh is to dwell with Israel, they'll need to follow his instructions to the minutiae. Why? Because having a holy God in the midst of their camp would be life-threatening. Having a microcosm, what they saw on Mount Sinai, in their midst would be incredibly dangerous. But God has a plan, and he commands them to follow it. On the mountain, he's revealing in some way to Moses what his heavenly throne looks like. And Moses and a thumbnail sketch is copying that down and replicating it in the tabernacle. That's why in verse 9 and 40, God commands them to make the tabernacle after his specific blueprint, his specific pattern shown on the mountain. It will be a replica of his heavenly throne room. It will be all the fire and grandeur of Sinai, sort of bottled up in a tent in the middle of Israel's camp. See the terror of this? See the wonder of this spectacle? See the mercy of this? God is only able to do this because he has made a covenant to be Israel's God and make them his people. And in the context of the covenant now, his throne comes down and he dwells among them. We see this truth of the throne of God throughout the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read, So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. In Psalm 99, we read, The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon, upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. 
the Ark of the Covenant would be the place where God met with his people. And we see that in verse 22. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you. So one scholar, one scholar calls this heaven come down. Another says this is the divine king's feet touching the earth, connecting heaven and earth. So this is glorious. This is breathtaking. I think it's hard for us to even imagine that. And what's in that chest? Well, it's the terms of the covenant. The written covenant between God and his people. God has made a way to dwell with his people. See, most every religion on earth is about making our way to God. How do I make myself right with God? But the religion of the Bible, the true religion of the true God, is not about making our way to him, but he himself making a way to come to us. And he does so by his word, by his covenant. He meets with his people based on covenant, his words of law and promise. God is not to be worshipped however we see fit. No, he does set rules. He may, you may have heard it asked, why can't God just forgive everyone? Why does he have to make it so hard? And it's because a holy God cannot simply accept the worship of a sinful people. You and I may not see what's so hard about forgiving somebody, but we're sinful creatures, and God is perfect and just. And so for him to exercise mercy to us, it must be done his way. It must be just. It must be holy. It must be costly. There must be a consequence for our sin. There is no other way. So church, see here at the Ark of the Covenant, the meeting of God and men. See God's mercy in full technicolor displayed. See it pop off the page. Amidst the cubits and acacia wood and poles and rings, we can lose sight of what this passage is all about. But it's really all over the place. God is binding himself in covenant to his people. He is voluntarily veiling his glory and indwelling a small tent alongside theirs in the wilderness. All because he loves them. And he has committed to going with them and being their God. What a mercy. So the third point this morning is the mercy seat. That lid on the Ark of the Covenant. So the cherubim are seated on what is the throne, or really the footstool of the heavenly throne of Yahweh. And this mercy seat is the place where he will meet with Israel. In Leviticus chapter 16, we see what would take place every year on this very seat. Yahweh tells Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. But the process continues. Aaron, by this time in Leviticus, is to wash and dress in specific ways and there are to be sacrifices. And then we read, Aaron shall take a censer full of coals and fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense 
beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some blood with his finger seven times. He would do this for his own sins and the sins of the people. The blood of the animal would stand in for them as on this day, once a year, what is known as the Day of Atonement. So the pure gold of the Ark of the Covenant, this gold overlaid exquisite piece of holy furniture, would be splattered with crimson blood. This is why it's called the mercy seat. It contains the very covenant between Yahweh and his people. And yet every year, that covenant throne of God would be doused in blood, showing Israel they could not keep the covenant, but would need forgiveness through the death of another. Tim Chester says the blood would cover the penalty of the law. And church, there has been a greater sacrifice than this, greater than an animal's blood. God's own son has left the throne room of his father, not a replica tabernacle and a tent with the Israelites, not a fiery copy of Sinai, but the very throne room of his father, and he has entered into our mess, taking our sin on himself. Again, this wasn't animal's blood. He shed his own blood, innocent blood, and that blood has now atoned for our sin in a way the blood of a bull could never do for Israel. The blood of God's own son has been shed for you, for me, once and for all. It's not repeated every year. It happened once. It was final. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the Bible's clear on this. How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? That is the most important question you will ever ask. How can you be right with God in relationship with him is the question you must ask before you die and meet him. And the answer is, someone else must be punished for our sin. Another must bear our guilt. And that person is Jesus. So will it be your blood shed for your sins? Or will it be the blood of Christ shared for you? If you'll trust in Jesus today, he'll forgive you. Right now, he will forgive you, and your sins will be placed on him and his sacrifice. So church, the mercy seat is open. We just sang of that. We can approach it now with confidence. There, is, there isn't a physical temple anymore. Instead, the mercy seat is open to every single Christian through Christ, through prayer. Fellowship with God through Jesus' blood is available to all of us right now. So like we said, it was open to Aaron only once a year. Now it's open to us all the time. It's there for our refuge, for our comfort, for our need. So do you feel distant from God this morning? Well, that feeling of distance may be very real. 
But hear the truth of the gospel. Regardless of how you feel about God right now, the veil has been torn and you have access to the mercy seat. Blood has been shed for you. So in your struggle, approach. Draw near to God. Cry out to him. Ask for help. Jesus has secured mercy for you, so grab a hold of it. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So now, the Savior. So we need to carry on and see the other two items of furniture in the tabernacle. You see, those in your handout as well, I believe there's pictures in your handout, and there in verse 23, Yahweh begins to lay out the plans for a table that will hold bread. The table is about three feet long, 18 inches wide, and two feet tall. I kind of think it's uh, like the rolly cart Ed uses to make coffee here on Sunday mornings. I don't know if he has a, if he's measuring with his forearm how many cubits that is, um, but this table would also have been carried with poles as a holy consecrated item. And on that table every week, Aaron and his priests would lay 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the 12 tribes. These would be the bread of the presence, the presence of God. And there seems to be at least two things symbolized here. One is that we saw two weeks ago, is what we saw in two weeks ago in Exodus 24, a meal was the way Israel celebrated acceptance before God. As the covenant was ratified, they shared a meal with Yahweh on Mount Sinai. That meal showed their fellowship with God, and the same way these loaves here seem to be symbolizing that very thing, fellowship as the presence of Yahweh dwells in their midst. The other thing that seems to be in view is provision of God for his people. The bread of the presence reminds Israel they have a covenantally faithful and providing God to worship and share and serve. So next in verses 31 through 40, we see a lampstand that's constructed. It's made of gold, about 75 pounds. The seven branches are meant to look like a tree. Some think this is pointing back to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden the very last time that God actually dwelt among men. Others think, with this continually burning light, it is there to remind Israel of the burning bush. I think both of those views are right. The lampstand shows that God is ever holy, self-existent Yahweh, living in that camp, in that tent among the Israelites. And so, church, as we wrap up Exodus 25, In each of these three items of furniture, we see fulfillment in Christ. He is the one who left his father's throne room to come to us. He is heaven come down. He is our bread of life. In John 6, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He is the light of this world. And he says it in John 8, I am the light of this world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So church, we don't see here merely an ancient tent built 3,000 years ago by an ancient people to worship God. We see the sort of precursor for God's entire 
plan of redemption that is continuing to this day. The tabernacle points to Jesus. Jesus is God come down. He is the meeting point between a holy God and us, sinful man. He is the one whose blood was shared so we could be shown mercy. How vast and measureless the flood of mercy unrestrained. The penalty was paid in full. The spotless lamb was slain. Salvation, what a priceless gift. Received by grace through faith. We stand in robes of righteousness. We stand in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your vast and measureless mercy. Even though we deserve punishment, you sent Christ here to take the consequences that we deserve. Let us live out our lives in light of that truth and praise and worship of your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.